We're in Luke. Is it up on the screen? I think it's up on the screen. Luke 22. He, and this he is Jesus, withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a passage in our community we've turned to a number of times. And, uh, and some of the things I'm going to share with you, um, if you've been around this community for a couple years now, there's a little bit toward the end that may sound a bit familiar. And I had a moment as I began preparing for this message after Vision Sunday, knowing I had this one last week to talk about if we're going to live our best life, we're going to live in the life that Jesus invites us to, abundant life, life to the full then Jesus instructs us, he shows us, and, and this is a really a theme through the whole scripture, is we need power from outside us to do that. And I kept coming back to a particular way of praying. In other words, it's one thing to just talk about, yes, the Holy Spirit, if you're even familiar with Christian language, Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead, God three in one, all right, we're already in deep waters, the Spirit, is told, we're told by Jesus, will come to remind us of all the things that Jesus taught his disciples. It will, it will empower us. And so I could just get up here and say, by the way, that's a reality. Make sure you, just, you, you pray and ask God for that reality to happen more in your life. And then sort of walk away. And I realized, what I asked myself the question, what is the beginning of accessing the power of God? Where do you start? And so I don't want to moralize this or, or moralize some of these stages I'm about to talk about. But I'm sharing out of my own heart, which I, I think I'm going to make the case for, is, is uh, fairly evident in Scripture as one way in which we, um, it's not that we get um, access to God, but God gets access to us. Would anyone like God to have access to you? Whatever that means, right? Right? That sounds like, or maybe it sounds horrifying. It's not horrifying to anybody. I don't know if I want God poking around in there. There's some stuff in there. I don't know if I, I want this life that God invites us to. So if, if, I, had a, if I had a name for this sermon, uh, maybe it would be called Put Your Hands Up. Or maybe it would be called Be Careful. So I want to talk, first of all, about these three stages of prayer. And they're going to slowly kind of go up on the screen through the course of this talk. I think to a degree, we are always in all three of these. So I'm gonna, in a, in a way, you, you'll, you'll hear me talk about moving from stage one to stage two to stage three. But I think as a follower of Jesus, we're always coming in and out of these stages. So I don't want you to get the, the idea that one is just um, elementary. So the first stage of prayer, you, you with me today? We're talking about power, we're talking about surrender. How does God get more access to me? You say, turn to your neighbor and say, access. And then unless it's your spouse next to you, next to you turn to them and say, you have no access to me. <laughs> it was dark and weird. <laughs> Getting what we want from God. So this first stage is the prayer of request. Prayer of request if you're taking notes. We are encouraged in the scripture to ask God for things. One writer says there's really only three prayers. There's like help, thank you. Really two, I guess you could say help and thank you. Please help and thank you. Help is like a central way in which we pray. Matthew 7, 7 to 11 says this. This is Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The evil there then is like a recognition of the way in which we are tainted by sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus felt this was important to say. This is his like manifesto for your best life. In the middle of that, he goes, by the way, ask, seek, knock. God is a good father who gives good gifts. And for many, this is represented in people's early walk with God. I found that people, when they first come to Jesus, I get the opportunity often to walk with folks in that stage. And they just feel like God is answering every single prayer. Like I was just praying that my old, like my friend would show up in the coffee shop and I prayed it. And then two like hours later, they just showed up. And they're like, I can't believe I ran into you. And you're like, I know, I know, I prayed you here. I like, summoned you via prayer. Like there's just something about you, like you're seeing signs everywhere and praying for parking spaces and weather. And, and somehow things just seem to sort of work out. And I, I think in part you're looking for connections. And then in part, though, there's the mercy of God in that early stage where, where God is, is doing something in your life pouring out his mercy. I have a check-in that I've mentioned to you before that I do with my oldest daughter, Harper. And so I, I usually on a Saturday night as we end our like family Sabbath or sometimes a Sunday night as she's beginning, getting ready to begin her week going to school, I will put her to bed like I often do and we'll pray. But right before we pray, I will ask her, hey, can we do a check-in? She knows what that is. Yeah, dad. So what, um, what ways am I like doing a good job loving you? She'll share. Well, what things does dad need to work on? How, how do you, so I'm getting like, I'm listening feedback. It's like a little formal check-in with my six-year-old. I take it really seriously, even at this age where there's not a whole lot of things to think about. But she's just like, yeah, like things are going all right. Or daddy, maybe you could. She'll try to think of something. Usually she can't come up with something because I'm just such a great dad. But the person who, um, who kind of pinged this idea of doing this with my daughter um, he tells this story of asking his daughter, I think she was age four or something, I can't remember exactly the story, but I, I, I love this story because Harper has said similar things. So his daughter says to her, Dad, I love you, you're doing great. Why, why honey? You give me everything I want. Harper many times has said something very similar. Yeah, everything's going great, Dad. You're like, you're just hooking me up with everything. You're giving me everything I want. And actually, I, I love that. Like, it's basically true. There's something wonderful about that because what's being established in her life is the nature of her father. And the nature of her father is he provides, he takes care of me. And I know you didn't come here early on a Sunday morning to hear me tell stories about my kids. So the word of God says, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, because God is better than your earthly dad. So let, let's not try to write this off or, or excuse this away because of lack of experience or maybe because we, we don't want to actually go out on a limb and trust that God might provide in that way. The number one question in the Gospels is, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's such a consumeristic question. Like, don't treat God like a genie. 
Now, there's a dark side maybe to some of this, but Jesus is very clear over and over, what do you want me to do for you? In fact, when he sees need, it seems to trigger his compassion and his power. This is normal help. And in your early walk with Jesus, I think this is just a really common occurrence. Well, what do you want me to do for you? There's a sense of the Father building trust with that brand new person who's brand new to the way of Jesus. But you can't stay in that place. I imagine asking Harper this question when she's 16. And I like to imagine when I go up to her and she's laying in bed. I can't even think of a 16-year-old Harper. I'm going to start to cry. But she's... But, uh, I'd turn her and ask her, hey, so how am I doing? How am I doing being a dad? She's got a lot more opinions, I'm gonna assume now. Maybe a little bit of teenage angst, that whole puberty thing. Looking forward to that. And I can imagine her saying, hey, dad, I know you love me because you don't let me do whatever I want. I like to imagine at least her saying that. Richard Foster says this. As we are learning to pray, we discover an interesting progression. I think this is up on the screen. In the beginning, our will is in struggle with God's will. We beg, we pout, we demand. We expect God to perform like a magician or shower us with blessings like Father Christmas. We major in instant solutions and manipulative prayers. As difficult as this time of struggle is, we must never despise it or try to avoid it. It is an essential part of our growing and deepening in things spiritual. To be sure, it's an inferior stage, but only in the sense that a child is at an inferior stage to that of an adult. The adult can reason better, can carry heavier loads because both brain and brawn are more fully developed. But the child is doing exactly what we would expect at that age. You have needs. It's okay to ask for help. First stage is the stage of request, asking God for your will to be done. Asking God, hey, God, I have some preferences here. And asking God for your will to be done. So moving out of this stage, though, is hard. Have you ever seen a kid throw a temper tantrum? Yeah? Even if you don't have kids, you ever seen a kid throw a temper tantrum? Yeah. Like, that moment is, is, especially when kids first start throwing them, is the transition, even in our life with God, from stage one to stage two, um, I, uh, I've seen, observed this in many, no, no judgment, but in many Providence parents, um, especially over the neighborhood we live in, it's like children are their gods, like little toddler gods. Like everything you want, they build their whole life, their Instagram feed, everything is about their children and their identity as a parent. It's a different sermon. But I just want to tell parents sometimes when I see their kids freaking out and crying, like I just want to go up to them and be like, hey, 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 buddy, stand firm. Stand firm. They are going to thank you letter. Stand firm. Don't give them the screen. Don't give them the screen. Don't, don't give them the chocolate. Oh, and they give them the screen. And they give them the chocolate. <laughs> this is the stage, though, I joke, but you're building trust. This is what God does. God's building trust. It's like, hey, hey, don't just love me for what I give you. Love me for who I am. Trust me. God does this. Do you love me for me or for what I do? Do you trust me? So this is the stage of relationship. Here he's trying to show us his face. He's trying to show us his face. Psalm 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What do you want to do with your life, Andrew? I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. 
I dare you to answer next time someone asks you, what do you want to do with your life? I just want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. The writer here has an image of God that is not just about what God can do. There's something implicit about what God, who God is. I repeat this phrase often, the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good, the true, and the beautiful. I didn't come up with this phrase. It's a very common in literature, specifically Christian literature where it's a sort of way of summing up like life with God and who God is, is good and true and beautiful. I think sometimes we don't think of God as, as beautiful, right? You ever seen somebody just incredible looking? Like you're walking by on the street or you walked into church today, you're like, oh, you're like looking to see if there's a ring on the finger. I don't know. And, and what's the word we often use when we see somebody who's really beautiful? They're stunning. I was thinking about that word for a minute. Like literally, think of like stunning, like sci-fi fans, like you get stunned by like a stun gun. Like you're just sort of like, like you freeze for a minute. They're stunning. They like, they literally cause you to pause for a quick moment. They turn your face. This is, there's so much language in scripture about God being like this. The writer is moved to a stage of relationship. What do you want to do? Ah, no big deal. I just want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord for the rest of my life. In fact, that's an image of what we have of what heaven is like. The second stage, um, God wants to release something in us, to release an affection and release a trust. Romans 8, 15. Have me on the screen. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. God wants to release like the Abba cry, the cry for dad, the longing and connection for just being with dad, a cry that says, look at me. Look at me, a spirit of sonship. This is really specific. Translations that do a good job acknowledging that the scriptures are written to men and women and use that language. The reason why it doesn't say adoption to sonship and daughtership is because it's important, the context in this culture. Sonship is about like firstborn. You carry the family name. So though we don't talk like that as much now, it was really important in this time to make sure that that's highlighted. Because what Paul is saying is to be a follower of Jesus, have the spirit with you, is to be like grafted in at the highest place in the family structure, the firstborn sonship. This is who we are. And it produces a cry in us, dad, a confidence. If you grew up with a, even a halfway decent father where you knew dad was dad and you knew he was going to be there best he could, Right, you know what that has produced in us. Maybe it's better to, to, to highlight the contrast. I, I say this because it grieves me. The amount of times in that prayer corner after service, after a Sunday, after a sermon, that I find myself or our prayer team finds ourselves praying with people, often specifically women, women who have incredibly big father wounds. Like dad wasn't there. And the deep internal subconscious existential pain that 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 provides, what we see here in the text is a desire when the spirit comes on us that we would have this cry for dad, a trust that dad is gonna be there, a trust that's devoted to the nature and character of God, a relationship. You know who, you know whose you are and you long to be with God. Look, I wanna be honest for a minute. 
When I was younger, um, I grew up in a, in a Christian home, so this may not relate to some of you. But I, I honestly, even now, I struggle with what I'm about to say. I, I wouldn't say, like, I don't want, like, I don't know if I would say I want God to come back tomorrow. Especially when I was younger. Like, I don't know, so there's, if you're new with us, we have this understanding, this, this deep-held belief that, uh, that Jesus is gonna, like, renew all things. He's inviting us to join him in that, but ultimately, he's gonna do something decisive that, that will bring about, like, heaven crashing into earth, that Jesus will, will come back in some really powerful and very real way, and, and, and there will be no, no like, wipe away every tear from their eye that this will be this moment that every prophet and writer has like longed for. And for a long time, partly because I had a very thin and opaque view of heaven, but part of it is like when I was like 16, I don't want God to come back. I haven't had sex yet. Don't judge me. You know what I'm saying. Right? Like, don't come back. Like, don't, don't come back yet. There's some stuff I want to enjoy. I haven't been to, I know like in the new heavens and the new earth, like things are going to be great. But like, you know, on this side, I'd still like to go to Paris. I feel like that might be good. I don't know what the new heavens Paris looks like, but the old heavens, like this side still is pretty sweet. I'd like to go to Paris. Right? I don't know if I want that. I'm not traveling the world. I want to accomplish some stuff. And now that I'm in this stage of my relationship with God, and when I've been around the world a bit, I can see that this isn't as good as it is. There are longings deeper than this and passions better than this. And I actually ache for the day when I will see God face to face and behold, hear him say, behold, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And all those tears will be wiped away. There's a longing that happens in this stage where you go, I know where the beauty and the truth is and it's with him. And so it would be really sweet if halfway through this sermon, it all comes to a glorious, renewing, reconciling end. I ache for that day. God has to do something in this season where you believe it and where you trust, where the cry of your heart isn't, God, give me a spouse, or God, give me that job, or God, make me just a little less anxious. Where your cry is like, I just want to be with you and be saturated with you and be in communion with you in whatever way that can happen on this side of eternity. See, we've, re we've reversed the cry that Paul gives us in the scriptures. For those of you who are, who are, again, new, Paul is a church planter. He's starting these outposts in the middle of Roman oppression, starting these new churches. And he says this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We've reversed this to say to live is gain and to die is Christ. We've said, I'm gonna just live and then like I'll get Christ at the end. I'm gonna live however I want and the way that I want or the best way, like the best way I can kind of make sense with a little bit of Jesus thrown in and then to die is Christ. Now Paul says to live is Christ and to die, I mean that's like bonus because I get to be with the Father. This isn't about escaping this world. This is about longing for the king to reign over every part of it, which we get to join him in helping do that. Let me live it up and then I'll die and get some Jesus. So it's in this stage, the stage of relationship, that Jesus frees us from addictions to outcomes in prayer. Let me say this again. It's in this stage that Jesus frees us from an addiction to, to having particular outcomes that we want in prayer. It's like, oh man, I love when God answers me, but if not, you know, I'm with him. Always makes me think of Daniel uh, in the fiery furnace. There's this really amazing supernatural scene, right, where Daniel, who is a, a good Hebrew boy, finds himself with a few friends in their Babylonian exile, 
He is in foreign land, foreign country with totally different worldviews of what it means to be alive and what it means to flourish and what it means to love, what it means to be faithful. He won't bow down. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in, uh, sorry, in Daniel 3.16, these three um, replies, King Nebuchadnezzar puts them in the fiery furnace. And they say this, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It's like he can save us. We might burn up, but we will burn for him. There's a surrendering of the outcome. When you're in this stage of relationship, you're like, yeah, I don't really know how it all works out, but like, whether God answers or not, but as for me, right? Vision Sunday last week, but as for me, I'm gonna gonna stay the course. Stage one, your your will, personal will be done on earth. Stage two, you're swept up into who God is. And then stage three, and this is what will connect us to talking about power. Stage three is one that God invites you into and so many don't take the invitation. And I just wanna be real with you that on my best day, I take the invitation, but I'm in a season of struggling to take this invitation with some things in my own life. This is the invitation and this is why I think the church is often so powerless. The invitation is to simply pray a prayer of surrender, to actually know how to surrender. Dallas Willard says this, however we may understand the details, there can be no doubt on the biblical picture of human life, that we were meant to be inhabited by God and live by a power beyond ourselves. Human problems cannot be solved by human means. Human life can never flourish unless it pulses with the exceeding greatness of his power to us, to usward who believe. But only constant students of Jesus will be given adequate power to fulfill their calling to be God's person for their time and their place in this world. Whew, that's good, huh? I'll read it again later if you didn't catch all that. So here's where to start. You see in Luke 22, the text we read, Jesus is putting on a workshop on one of the most profound ways to pray. Number three, the prayer of surrender. Jesus is about to go to the cross and Jesus is like, if there's any other way, I, I would like to take that way. Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Jesus, because of a number of things that are happening in the mysterious, like, spiritual realm, but things just right on the, like, the face of things, right? He is a political dissident. He has been taking his time calling out a religious world that has put up fences and are keeping people out. He has spent a lot of time critiquing the Roman Empire and critiquing them via saying, these Pharisees, these religious folks, you have gotten too in bed with power and politics. We see Jesus going around and announcing, hey, heaven is about to break out in a new way. God is about to to 
begin to kickstart his rescue plan and begin to make all things new in and through his people. And he's going to start like he started the original story with calling out a group of people, they, the church, to be a blessing to the world, to demonstrate and announce this new kingdom. Jesus is about, because he's been talking about this and basically saying, I'm Lord, and his followers are saying that. And so he's taking off the religious elite He's ticking off the, the political, many folks in the, in the political realm and power in Rome. He finds himself knowing he's about to go to the cross. He's sitting in a garden knowing he's been betrayed and that essentially the guards are going to show up and take him to his death. And so naturally, he prays like anybody else would pray, fully human and fully God. He goes, if there's any way to have this cup taken from me, which is, again, a Hebrew way of saying, God, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, please let it be done. And then he says that infamous phrase, not my will, but what? But yours be done. Not my will, but what? Yours be done. This is the, is the prayer of surrender. Look, Jesus all the time, if you're new to the Bible, he's always giving people what they want, like, like regularly, the only point that Jesus even ever asks for something himself, he says this to him. And the father says no to him. He's busy. Oftentimes when people are coming to him, help, he's healing and asking, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And Jesus turns around and goes to ask his father for something, and he gets a no. He gets a no. This is a stage of prayer. Hear this, please. Where prayer changes us. This is a stage of prayer where prayer changes us. God will invite you to a place of deeper surrender into deep waters. And I'm talking about this today because I believe this is where the power is to live this Jesus vision of your best life. You have to be careful with this prayer because it will change you. If you sit in this sort of prayer, it will change you. I think about this often, like everything in our world could be changed in a year. Like so many of the societal issues we see around injustice, people coming to the Lord. A lot of this could be changed in a year of just every follower of Jesus. I mean, the data, I was reading something like almost kind of holds up in this kind of funny little experiment. If everybody would just take more seriously the great commandment, and they're sorry, the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. If, if, if followers of Jesus everywhere just in an instant stopped and said, not my will but yours, whatever you want, I'm going there, and began to even just on the face of things begin to lean into that knowing that this life is not what they need to bank on. The redemption and renewal that we would see, everything could change if everyone would relinquish their will. But he tolerates our mess because he wants to work through us. I had this image in talking to a friend the other day about some of this stuff and surrender. This is a really kind of backwards analogy, but I imagine being held up, and you see this in movies sometimes where it's like the, the, the it's like a, it's always a young married couple and they're about to go up to their, their, um, their flat or something in New York and then somebody comes up and like sticks a gun in their back and put your hands up and like give me all your money. So I wanna be really clear, God is not looking to hold you up. Follow me for a moment. And so they, they put their hands up and, and, and uh, I don't know, the, 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 uh, the wife or something, uh, she's like giving, un, un, taking her purse off and giving everything and, and the husband's like, you know, taking off his watch, but he knows he's got like something really special in his pocket. 
Maybe it's like a, I don't know, like a wad of cash or something else. And he's not quite sure the robber knows it's there. And he's like, is that everything? Right? In that moment, it's always the dumb moment in the movie where one person, like one person in that couple, like has to make that decision. Am I going to risk my life being taken to hold on to this thing? Am I going to risk being shot? Am I gonna, I'm, I'm gonna basically, I'm calling this person's bluff that they won't know that I have that valuable object. I have one more thing kind of hidden in my pocket that they can't really see, hidden in my purse that I can't really see. There's this sense that as we begin, I think this is the story of many of us who, who I've been walking with God, who, who I have a relationship with God. I'm, I'm, I really am trying to make sense of walking with him faithfully, but we got a couple things that we're just not willing to let go of and hand over, and it actually is making us powerless or not have the kind of power that we could have. Or this analogy breaks down, it's because God's not trying to take things from you or rob you. He's inviting you to let go of your unloving, unbeautiful, ungodly wants so that he can direct you towards his will. Because what he wants and what he's doing and what he's inviting you to do is where all the power is. The Holy Spirit's job, according to Jesus, is to whisper in your ear and remind you of the things that Jesus taught and empower you to do them. His question then is this, who can I use to do my will? I hear God asking that question all the time. Who can I use to do my will? Who will actually surrender their will? I have some things in my life that I don't wanna pray about. I just was honest with you all. Do you. Like stop for a second, awkwardly in the middle of a sermon. Like think about it for just five seconds. Are there things in your life, those of you who are here and followers of Jesus, that you don't want God to touch? And he needs to because he wants to fill you with power. He wants to make you clean and alive and holy and beautiful and more full of life and love than ever before. There's some things you're worried if you let him into that aspect of who you are, he might jack some things up and that call that you got when you were 20 and you first came to Jesus might resurface. There's some ways you, you might think about living differently. There's some things all of a sudden you might feel like you gotta sell and let go of. Are there some habits that you have that you're like, I need to be ruthless and deal with this. I have some things, I'm your pastor, some things I really struggle with handing God to. Do you? Some of you have said, I surrender my life to Jesus, but not that part. You are king of my heart, most of my heart. That left ventricle, there's some stuff there I don't want you to touch. <laughs> and God is like, do you wanna join me? Do you want to be well? Do you want to have power? Do you want to have surrender? Anybody in recovery knows this. All the power is in the surrender. All the power is in the letting go. That is the great paradox of the human existence. And in some mysterious supernatural way, we see over and over this is where God moves. Accessing the power of God begins with aligning yourself with his purposes. There is power in the person who is all in. 
There's power in the person who's all in. We know this and we see it all the time. There's an energy and abandonment. Never mind whatever supernatural things are going on when you see somebody who's all in. When you see somebody who has gone headlong into the way of Jesus. It applies to anything, right? Music or you're, or you're like an entrepreneur or some, whatever your industry is. You've seen someone kind of go all in on something. Just, just in a human fleshly sense, there's like a power there. Somebody who's devoted themselves, who have a little bit of a healthy radical edge, right? Like, I'm all in on that thing. How much more with the life of Jesus? One more prayer of surrender that I love. We can welcome the band up. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, Paul says. A messenger to Satan to torment me. He's got something going on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, hear this, is made perfect in what? In my weakness. There's something in my surrender where God's power is made perfect. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There is a surrender to external circumstances, and then there is a surrender to my propensities, getting it out and into the light and saying, God, 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 will you speak into this? Because I don't know about you, when I'm stepping into things that aren't holy or good or true or beautiful, I am shutting off my communication very quickly with the God of the universe. This is a death. This prayer brings us to death. A crucifixion of your will. Paul knew what a great grift this was. I've been crucified with Christ. There's a death that produces a releasing of power. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To put it really simple, if you're a little lost in the weeds right now, more Jesus equals more power. <laughs> more Jesus, more of him in there. This is not about earning God's love. You don't need to move to the stage of prayer to like be a follower of Jesus. I just think you will live a very powerless existence and I just will testify that I've found that to be true. In my seasons of most of my surrender, and saying, look, not my will but yours, Lord, in this area, I have found such rescue, release, and power. And it's been freedom. I don't know anybody else can testify to that, but I've experienced such freedom from all like the self-sins which quench the spirit, self-sufficiency and self-pity and self-absorption and self-abuse and self-aggrandizement and self-deception and self-exaltation and self-depreciation and self-indulgence and self-hatred and all sorts of other ones means freedom from the everlasting burden of always having to get my own way. <laughs> that feels funny to say, right? Like a freedom from like, I don't have to get my own way all the time because I don't know if you're like you, but my own way just, just sucks often. Anyone else? Anyone else testify to that? Just every once in a while, you're like my own way and what I want and what I have constructed for myself in this sweet little American life is actually, I'm betting, not what's best for me. So it's not shame, it's not guilt, it's actually life as the Father of Jesus. We go, thank God that I have a Father I can trust who will help me face whatever fear I have of calling out the brokenness in my heart and pulling me into the future 
calling me into my best life, my most fully alive self. We are dealing with a God who loves us and who wants to empower us to walk in his way. If you're taking notes, four prayers I wanna give you. The will is surrender moment by moment as you face ordinary decisions in your home, in your family, in your job. But here's some practices to consider. I just wanted to get really practical because I think when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it just gets mystical really fast, which is great. But I wanna drill this down a little. A couple prayers, ready? You with me? The prayer of self-emptying. This is the prayer in Philippians 2. You can read it another time. This is just, this is, um, this is becoming like, here's what I got. Self-emptying is confession. Here's what's in there. Make me whole. I don't know. I think I want this. I think this is what I'm supposed to want, but not my will, but yours. The prayer of surrender. Once you're emptied out, God begins to point out things, specific things. Stay awake and watch. Struggle. See other options. Not my wills, but yours be done. The surrender is going, all right, lead me. The first one is about just emptying, putting it all out there. Prayer of surrender is about picking something up. Three, the prayer of release. Into your hands, I commit my career. Into your hands, I commit my expectations. Committing, putting what you need to in God's hand. This is the prayer of death and of the cross. God won't take it from you. God will not coerce you. God's a God of love and he's inviting you. I love you so much and I love you right where you are. Will you acknowledge where you are? I know where you are. I know what's going on. I need you to name it, acknowledge it, and hand it to me, to trust me. That pleases me, and I can't really work until you do that. You gotta own it. This isn't about informing God of things. He's well aware. He's inviting you to participate. And lastly, the prayer of resurrection. This is the, I only want what's back from you that's good. I only want the gold. I only want the good stuff. The end of refinement. God, just give me back what, what I, give me back the good stuff. I don't want anything less than heaven. This releases power. In this prayer, you are acknowledging that God can do anything because he can. And that you can face difficulty and hardship and brokenness. I want to end with a story. Catherine Marshall, an American author, um, uh, in her best-selling book, Beyond Ourselves, she offers guidance on like all these topics like forgiveness and suffering and miracles and unanswered prayer. And she has this chapter called The Prayer of Surrender. Prayer of Relinquishment is actually what it's called. She said she was introduced um, to this particular form of praying, the stage that we're talking about, in the fall of 1943 during a long illness that kept her in bed. After seeing many specialists and being persistent in prayer, Miss Marshall used all the faith that she could muster. However, she did not get well. Nothing happened. 
Marshall tells the story of how she was led to make a change in what she was doing in order to get well. She came across a pamphlet that contained the story of a, of a missionary, somebody who was like doing, doing justice, loving people, caring for the poor, announcing the way of Jesus, and who had been an invalid for eight years. She comes across the story of a missionary who had been an invalid for eight years. This person had prayed that God would make them well so that they could continue to do their work for God. She came to the end of what she was doing and prayed, because this, this missionary wasn't healed either, and prayed this, all right, I give up. If you want me to be an invalid for the rest of my days, or if you, you just you are, don't want to heal me for some reason, that's your business. Anyway, I discovered that I want you even more than I want health. You decide. That was her prayer. You following me? Her prayer was, I don't know what's going on with this thing. I know that you're not the author of evil. You're not the author of sin. You didn't do this, but if there's something you want to do in this or some reason why it's not healing, all I know is I want you and to do your will more than I want you to make me well. It's powerful. So Catherine Marshall couldn't forget this story as she's going through her own health crisis. Therefore, she came to the same point of surrender. She prayed, I'm beaten, finished, God. Decide what you want from me for the rest of my life. Now in her story from that moment on, her recovery began. And she said, she quote, felt as if the windows of heaven opened for her. Now this doesn't happen every time. But what she's picking up on is the greater good that God may want to do. The bigger story than just your own life. Not my will, but, but yours be done. This is the invitation from Jesus to surrender your will, to be led into love and truth and grace. Look, whatever you're scared of, whatever you're scared to let go of, to look full in the face, just remember that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. This is why we, we, we stack the opening part of the, the service today with all these songs of like, you're good and you're faithful. I can give thanks to God when you're, when you're, you're, I know you're more than enough when stuff's really hard. I can praise you in the high places and the low places. Things are hard. There are things to grieve in my own heart and around me. I know you're faithful. We wanted to set you up for this moment to go, he can be trusted. And maybe you need to increase your faith a bit today to believe that. And when we do that, you will watch your fear evaporate. Hey, look, not my will, but yours. And watch as his power is released in our church. The more people who go, not my wills, but yours. There is a communal element to it where the reason why we ended this series with this, the reason why the book that our home groups have been going through end with the subject of power is because, well, however we may understand the details, there can be no doubt on the biblical picture of human life, that we were meant to be inhabited by God and live by a power beyond ourselves. Human problems can't be solved by human means. Human life can never flourish unless it pulses with the exceeding greatness of his power. But only constant students to Jesus, people who surrender their life in the way of Jesus, will be given adequate power to fulfill their calling to be God's person for their time and their place in the world. And so as we come to the table to take the bread and the cup, 
May we experience in some mysterious and beautiful way the next part of the story of Jesus in the garden. The relinquishment of control and the wide open thing that opens up, which is Jesus saying, all right, I'll go where you want me to go. And where he goes is into the saving of the world, the forgiveness of sins, the kickstarting of the kingdom. What as you take that bread and cup, as you identify with him in his death, when you identify with him and his surrender, what might God want to open up? And what beautiful, glorious, majestic power might God want to release? Might we be full of faith? Might we have a rich, like, I don't know, Pentecostal Anglican moment right now? Might we have a moment as we take the bread and the cup, this ancient act, may this Holy Spirit just fall on each of us, awakening the places in our life that we need to, be, to surrender. And might we experience what I have found over and over and my friends have found over and over and throughout history have found over and over. It won't feel like shame and guilt. It will feel like love from a father who actually gives a damn. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus Christ, my family, we, Lord, want to be people who walk in greater power, who walk in the spirit, who walk in love and justice and goodness and beauty in this broken world. And we know, Lord, that the answer to the human problems in our own lives and the lives around us are you. Lord, your spirit come down. And so as we are reminded, Lord, of your body broken and your blood poured out, of the bread and the cup, of the greatest act of surrender and love the world has ever seen, may we join you in that. And may you convict and move us. In Jesus' name, everybody said. We're going to come up the center aisle and take the bread, dip it in the cup. If you need to just name this, talk to somebody. We, there's people over here we'd love to pray for you. Other prayer folks and leaders, if you see that area fill up or you see people just sitting on the front pew waiting for prayer, will you just come up and pray with folks? We're gonna, and then as you take communion, come back around. Don't leave. Come and sit as we just finish this one last song together. We're gonna sit and soak in this moment trusting God wants to do something powerful in the, right now. So let's come and let's sing and let's eat together.